You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Amen. Very glad to be able to worship with you uh, here today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, and I get to serve as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Again, just want to extend a special welcome to all of our guests and visitors that we have with us. Very glad that you're with us. We are finishing up our First Corinthians series. We started it in August. We took about a, almost two months off in December uh, and, and January and did a couple other smaller series there. But we've been spending a lot of time in this book. I pray it's been a blessing to you as it has been to me as we're drawing to a close. We're actually going to be dealing with the last Uh, the last chapter in the book today. We're going to circle back to chapter 15 next week for Easter as we talk a little bit more about the resurrection, but we're actually going to be working through the last chapter of the book. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Again, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Last week, as Paul was getting towards the end of his letter, he focused on what he said was of most importance. What was more important than anything else, he talked about Jesus Christ dying for sin in accordance with the scriptures and being raised again from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. He said that nothing is more important than this. This is primary. There are a lot of other things that he's talked about. He talked about spiritual gifts. Right? He talked about many different things that, that are important to us. He said there's nothing more important to that. So now after chapter 15, as we go into chapter 16, what Paul is doing is, is a little bit different than, than the other 15 chapters that are in the book. You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you had something important that you wanted to discuss and then when the conversation was almost over they were like, oh yeah, and a few other things I need to tell you real quick before we go. That's what Paul is doing here in chapter 16. He's already said the main points. He's talked about the gospel multiple times. He said this is more important than anything else. Now he's giving them some parting words, some parting instruction, some parting encouragement that he wants for them to have to leave with. So today, here's what I want to try to do. There's challenges in dealing with a chapter like chapter 16, where it seems pretty random and scattershot that he's all over the place. I'm not going to have time to get into everything in the chapter. Here's what I want to try to do. I want to try to make three main points, pull three main points out of this chapter, and I want to show how they tie in together and also how when we embrace worldly mindsets, we don't live in the way that God has called us to live. When we embrace worldly mindsets, we don't live as the way God has called us to live. We, we, we don't become the type of people that God has called us to be. In the Bible, there are three primary enemies that the believer in Christ has that are tempting us to sin, right? So there's Satan, whom you, you should be to some degree familiar with if you've been around our church for a while. Also, there's the flesh, which is known as our sinful nature, these impulses, these desires, these cravings that we have to do what is wrong. And then there is the world. The world is this, these mindsets that are pervasive throughout our culture, throughout our society, that we oftentimes take in. The world kind of sets a path for us, and we walk on it oftentimes blindly to the fact that we're actually following in the pattern of the world. So anytime the patterns in our society are contrary to the Word of God, contrary to Jesus, and we walk in them and just go with the flow, so to speak, we are being what the Bible would call worldly. We're just like the world. I was reading one article. It said, the world is the ways of culture and society that oppose the Lord. They're, they're, it's the, the ungodly trends 
that we see in our society today. So we see all three of these enemies. Before I even get into 1 Corinthians, don't turn here. I'll, be, just hit, Ephesians, I'll hit Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 very quickly, or at least the first part of, of verse 3, just to expose these three different enemies that I brought up. So we got verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. So he says, spiritually speaking, we were dead. We were dead to God. We were led and mastered by our sin. It says, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world, that these mindsets that are pervasive throughout our culture, these patterns, these ways of living and doing things that are contrary to the word of God, it's like it's a course. It's a path for us. It's like there are grooves in the road and we just got comfortable walking in the way that the world, that everyone else around us walks. And we live as if the gospel of Jesus is not actually true and we have not actually been redeemed to God the Father through the Son. It says the course of this world, that there's a path that our world just walks in, and if, if we as believers are not careful, we will walk in worldly ways. I'll just read through chapter, I mean, verse 2 and the beginning of, of verse 3 as well. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, right? So that's Satan, that's the enemy, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And the third one at the beginning of verse 3, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So Paul lays out all three enemies that would lead the believer into sin right here in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. Today, I want to focus specifically on our enemy of the world. And all three of these enemies work together. Satan tells us lies to get us to believe things that aren't true about God and aren't true about ourselves. The flesh internally corrupts us and compels us to do what is wrong. And the world is like this undercurrent. It's like the current in the river. Everything's moving in this direction. Everyone is doing this. And sometimes we as believers follow the trends of the world knowingly or unknowingly, especially if we do not have a deep and rich understanding of the word of God. Because if you don't have a deep understanding of the word of God, all that you have is what you hear and see from people around you or what you just believe internally to be true. That you've come up to believe on your own. So if, so if the word of God is not your compass, you, we're all going to be in this river just moving the flow with the flow of the world, doing what people in the world are doing. I believe the world is a very slept on and sneaky enemy. Partially because it just appears to be normal. Things that the Bible call worldly, we just call life. We just call, I'm just, I'm just living. This is just what we do. This is just how we Live, if you don't constantly find yourself fighting against the undercurrent of the world, if you don't constantly find yourself living in a way that people who do not know Jesus would categorize as crazy, you're whirling, you don't know it. If you are not going against the stream such that if somebody who didn't believe that Jesus was real, didn't believe Jesus died according to the scriptures, didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, if they saw the way that you lived your life and they'd be like, yeah, that makes sense, you're whirling, period. You're worldly. To, to not live in a way that is worldly would, be, would not make sense to anyone who does not have the hope in Christ that we have. The most dangerous enemy is the one that you don't see coming. The most dangerous enemy is the one that can be right beside you and you don't even know that it's killing you. And not only has that happened as it pertains to the things of the world, we've embraced it. We have embraced the enemy that is trying to destroy us and lead us away from God. We must understand. We must know the word. We must embrace the word of God. Or our only other option is to embrace worldliness. It is our only 
other option. Today, the specific aspect, the specific form of worldliness that I want to talk about is the way that we view freedom. The way that we view freedom. Some would call it freedom in Christ. The way we view freedom, a worldly stance on freedom, is that I need to throw off all outside restrictions so that I can do what I really want to do the most. That's the current of our culture right now. That is it. Throw off all the freedom. The easiest place probably to see it is in Disney movies, right? So Moana's got these restrictions placed on her. I don't even watch a lot of Disney movies. Moana's got the restrictions placed on her, and she's just, she's just got to go be free and follow her in herself, and she is wronging herself if she's not doing that, right? I got to throw off all of the restrictions that others are placing on me. I need to stop worrying about other people so much and do what I want to do. I'll explain this more later after we go through the passage, but just I'm, I'm still setting up what we're going to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 today. But this is why in our culture today, and it's not like this in every culture, and it definitely hasn't been this way throughout most of history. That's why in our culture today, uh, people are getting married later and later, and people are having kids later and later. Right? Because marriage and children place restrictions on us. And we don't want to live our prime years, our best years, having all of this restriction on us. Right? In our best years, we want to be able to do whatever we want to do. I, I want to do this. I got these goals. I got these dreams. I don't need anybody getting in the way of my dreams. So I want to delay these things until later. This is, and I'm not saying there's a, a specific time that you should get married. I'm saying this is a trend that lets us know what the worldly way of thinking is. In so many cultures throughout the history of our world, people getting married and having kids in their teens. We delay adulthood. I talked about this, I believe, maybe a couple weeks ago, so I was talking about Kid Town. Marriage, especially at first, is so hard for us. So maybe for some of us, it's not that we choose not to get married since we get married, but we don't want to walk within the restrictions that is marriage or whatever relationship that is that we're talking about, whether it's having kids or maybe it's just friendships that we, that we have. And our, friend, and our friend is in need, and it's like, well, they're calling at a very inconvenient time right now because, you know, Netflix. Our culture has pushed us towards this worldliness, this idea that I will actually only find true joy and inner peace if I throw off the restrictions that other people try to put on me. Those restrictions are holding me back, keeping me from being who I should be. Chance the Rapper in his song, 65th and the Ingleside. Okay. Okay. <laughs> he was talking about his relationship to the woman who's now his wife. I think they had just got engaged when the song came out. He said, he, here's what he said, and when, you, when they interviewed him afterwards, he was talking about, he was saying, yeah, I'm referring to mistakes that I made, and even talking about when he was cheating on his, uh, who was his girlfriend at the time. He, he says this, I was sleeping with you every single night, but I was still trying to act single, right? Yeah. What is he saying? I'm trying to get the benefits of the relationship. I'm trying to, get, I'm trying to have this, but I also want to hold on to my freedom at the same time. But I also can't let go of this freedom. I don't want the restrictions that come along with the relationship that I have with you. Our culture, we lust after a removal of all restrictions. We're addicted to it. He wanted to be sexually free, but be in a, in a relationship with someone. This, this trend in our culture, I believe, is one of the reasons why so many college students are so stressed about picking the right major. You got all these majors. 
And there's this extreme anxiety, like, I got I to gotta pick the right one. Which, which career path am I going to pursue? Then you get in a career path and you're still stressed out because, like, am I, should I stay in this career path? Why? Because we're so nervous about being within something that's going to put these restrictions on us and then we not be able to do the thing that we actually want to do. So it causes us deep levels of stress, deep levels of anxiety because we feel like we always need our options on, on us, open, I should say, because we don't want the restrictions that outside forces put on us. We don't want it. There's so many, so many societies in our world today and in the history of our world that everybody knows what they're going to be as far as their vocation and their career. It's look at what your dad did or your, or your parents did. For, for most sons, you're going to do what your dad did. Jesus, his dad was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. When Jesus calls uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, what are they doing? They're out fishing with their dad, who was a fisher, and so they were fishermen. They didn't have the options. So, so many of our cultures have not had the options that we have. We have so many options and we desire more and more. We don't want any types of restrictions because then it limits our options. It limits our ability to, in the moment, snap our fingers and do whatever we want to be able to do. Here in America, we state that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are inalienable rights. I can't say that word. Thank you. I'm not saying life, liberty, and happiness are bad. I'm saying that the world has laid out a course for us that we don't critically think about and we don't compare it with the word, which leads to us blindly following the world and taking the bait every single time. And I bring that up because it makes it harder for us to follow Jesus. And specifically, it makes it a lot harder to follow what Paul is going to bring up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that I want to pull out before us. I believe a lot of what he says, if I were to come to Christians, our church, and say some of the things in the exact same way that he said them, I believe some of us will have some pushback because we don't like the way that the the restrictions that he's placing on them as the apostle is the one bringing the word of God to them because we are addicted to this, what I call absolute freedom. No one can put restrictions on me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the full chapter, chapter 16, verses 1 through 24. Buckle up, and then we'll get to these three points that I'm going to draw out of it. Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you for even or even spend the winter so that I may help you. Sorry, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. 
Y'all going to love verse 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The first restriction that Paul puts on the Corinthians that I want to bring out is that they are to restrict the use of their money for God's purposes. That they are to restrict the use of their money for God's purposes. That word restrict means to put limits on. It means to bring under control. Paul tells them, go ahead, put your money aside. So I'll read verse 1 and 2 again. Let me, let me read that again, just to make sure we're on the same page. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This is what Paul said. Until I get to you, and he said it's going to be a while because I'm going to be here in Ephesus for a little while before I get to you. But until I get to you, put some money aside every week. Put it aside and store it up so that I don't have to come to you and collect it when I come. It's just there. Go ahead and put some money aside every week and then put it together so that when I come, I don't have to come to each of you and collect it from you. Stated as a command. No questions asked. This is not a suggestion that Paul is giving them. This is a command that he has given the Corinthian church. I was prayer walking last week. I met my man T. It was a great conversation. One of the first things that he said that he brought up was, yeah, I don't really believe in the Bible. You know, people like rewrote it and then they changed it up and all this kind of, you know, foolishness that he was saying. But he also said, if you talk to him a little bit further, he really got to what his real issue was. He said, well, when I kept coming to church, I kept asking for money. And that turned me off. I kept coming to the church. They kept asking me for money. And the way he described it, it might have been some shady stuff going on for sure. So hear, hear me on this. I am not trying to advocate for people giving a bunch of money to the church so the pastor can get rich. That's not what I'm advocating for. That's not what Paul is advocating for in any way. But at the same time, he does let them know. He does have a category for, I expect the believers, the followers of Jesus, to restrict the things that they would buy for themselves, to restrict the things that they would buy potentially for their children because they are giving to the church for the work of the kingdom of God. He said that's his expectation. He doesn't, he doesn't clarify. He doesn't give any type of disclaimers or anything. He said, put the money aside, store it up together. I'm going to come get it. I don't want to have to come to all of y'all to get it from you. So I'm going to have to collect this. So just put it aside. I'll come get it when I get there. One thing I like to say now about money is the way we spend our money is always saying yes to one thing and no to something else. 
right? That's just the nature of anything that you have a limited amount of that you have to use as currency. You're, you're, you're always saying yes to something and no to something else. Paul has the expectation that the believers would say no to other things that they could have, other things that they could buy to say yes to the work of the ministry for the kingdom of God. That's his expectation, that they would restrict themselves financially. Last week, I said that the significance and impact of the death and resurrection of Jesus should should be able to reach into and transform every area of our lives, every area of our lives, including the way we handle our finances. I want to talk to the believers in the room right quick. If you're not a follower of Jesus, tune me out for a second. For the believers in the room right now, do you have this same expectation or does it bother you when pastors get up and talk about money? Does it make you uncomfortable? Does it make you upset? Do you get a little bit angry? Right? So let's say Paul was a pastor of the church and he was like, I'm going to be gone for a while. Y'all just come just every week. Just bring your money, put it together. I'm going to come back and get it. I don't want to have to come to you all to collect it. Has our desire to free ourselves from the restrictions that other people place on us cause us to not be able to work towards the building of the kingdom of God as we should. In our world today, the current pattern of thinking is it's your money. You worked hard for it to do with it what you want. The Bible says it's God's money that we have because he gave us the strength to work hard for it, so do with it what he wants. Amen. Is what the Bible would say. If it frustrates you, to hear preachers talking about, or pastors, or churches, or whoever it is talking about the need to give to the work of the kingdom of God. The world has laid out a course for you, if you're a believer, and you've taken the bait. You've taken the bait, and you're walking in the course that the world has laid out. We've been brainwashed to believing that joy in life are found in our financial freedom being able to use our money the way that we ultimately desire to use it. We need to understand that having limits placed on the way we use our money isn't a bad thing for us. This is not God trying to take joy from us. He is trying to rid us of our love for money. We need to understand and realize ways that the world has been training us. The number two restriction that I want to pull from this passage is that Through Paul's example here, we see that the Christians should be able to restrict the way we use our time for God's purposes. That we should be able to restrict, I'm talking about put limits on and control the way that we use our time for God's purposes. We want to read verses 5 through 9. We want to read verses 5 through 9. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. If I do not want to just see you in passing, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. If you're familiar with Paul's ministry, right, Paul would leave, he left where he was living to go plant and start churches in different areas and different regions. So at this point, he'd already started quite a few churches. He'd obviously built some very deep relationships within the churches that he had built. And he's saying to the Corinthians, I would love to come and be able to spend some time with you. And I don't want to come just just passing. I want to really be able to be with you and spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Verse eight, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. But I want to be with you. I love you guys. 
I love my relationships with you. We'll love to spend time with you. But there is an opening for ministry here in Ephesus where I am right now. So I'm just going to stay here. So I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to choose, my, choose to spend my time here instead of the place that I pre- prefer to be at this time. And Paul could have justified it. He could have been like, you know, hey, God, but these people, they're a church too. I started this church. I could go back here and spend some time with them. I'm sure it would be great for them. But he knew God had specifically opened the door for him to do ministry right here. And he says, I'm going to spend my time right here. I'm going to restrict and limit where I allow myself to be and how I allow myself to use my time for the sake of the mission, for the purposes of God. Paul operates under the belief that even the time itself belongs to God, the creator of time. That even his time is not his own. He is a steward over the amount of time that God has given him, and he intends to use it in the way that he believes that God intends for him to use it for the purposes of God. He's like, my time doesn't even belong to me. If every time someone tells you you need to be more committed to the church, maybe to your life group, if you get defensive, if you give pushback, if you feel like they're actually harming you and taking good things from you, you took the bait. You took the bait. The world, it laid a path for you, put grooves in it, and you've just been walking in this groove. And now anytime someone tries to move you off of the course of the world, you feel like they're attacking you. You feel like they're against you. You feel like they are actually harming you because you took the bait. If every time someone calls you maybe to be more committed to the work of the Lord or to walk in in fellowship with biblical community, if every time someone does that, you feel like they're being overly pushy and legalistic, you took the bait. You took the bait. The world fed you these lies and you have believed them. You've gotten comfortable on that course, on the worldly course. You, you started to like it. It started to be where you prefer to reside. And so you feel wronged when someone challenges you in this area. Paul is uprooting his life to go and share the good news of Jesus with those that don't know God. And I'm not saying that you have to, to now move to some foreign country to be a missionary somewhere else. I'm not saying any of that at all, that you have to do that to truly be a follower of God. I'm not saying that, but how worldly are we if, we if it's become like pulling teeth for people to get us to commit to serving in any way? How worldly have we become that it would, it would be a struggle for us to commit to serving our church family consistently for those of us who are perfectly able to do so? Christian, I want to encourage you to be careful how much you feel like, how much you say you need your me time. I'm saying be careful how much you you believe that you actually need that. I want to ask you, right, where did you get that concept from? Was it the Word of God? Is it rooted at all in the Word of God, or is it only from things that you have heard in the world? Where have we gotten our concepts from? I want you to just be able to question. When you have an impulse, I can see in some of your faces you're pushing back right now. That, That impulse that you have. Right? That pushing back impulse that you have, where did you get it from? Where? (laughs) We're talking about the world right now. That's another enemy. We're talking about the world. I appreciate where you're coming from. Uh, Where did you get that impulse from? And hear me on this. I'm not saying resting is a bad thing. Resting is very biblical. The Sabbath is, is very biblical. 
Very biblical. We see it as early as Genesis chapter one, right? Very biblical, very important. But I'm, I'm wondering, where did you get your concept of what that should actually look like from? Did you get it from, from careful study of the word of God? Or did you get it from the world? And if you don't know where you got it from, you likely got it from the world. You likely got it from the world. I'm not even saying me time is bad. I'm asking you to question your understanding of it. Where did you get it from? How worldly are we if we won't intentionally make plans and sacrifice our time to fellowship with other members of our church, members of our life group? In our society today, everyone feels like it's my time. I can do with it what I want to do with it. And the Bible says, actually, it's God's time. and You should use it for how God calls you to use it. We don't own even our time. The third restriction that we have, restrict the use of your home for God's purposes. Restrict the use of your home for God's purposes. I don't know if you noticed this, but the the issue of where Paul was going to be in terms of Ephesus or going back to be with Corinth wasn't just an issue of how he was going to spend his time. He wasn't saying, hey, yeah, I'm going to try to add you into my calendar. He was talking about where he's going to live for likely months at a time. Where he was going to, to live. He, he saw the, where he lived as a means for the mission of God. He saw his very residence, where he was planted. Well, he didn't plant roots too deep because he was always moving, but where he was going to situate himself, where he was going to live. He looked at that through the lens of what would be most fruitful for the purposes of God. Where has God opened these doors at for me? Where are the doors open? Where might God calling me be calling me to do ministry, his decision-making process for where he would live was not at all about what was comfortable. It was not at all about what would make him happy. It was not at all about what he liked the most. I'm not saying being comfortable, being happy, and liking where you live are bad things. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they shouldn't be the primary thing. If those things are the primary thing, how are we any different from the world? If those things are the primary thing that we use to make the big decisions in our life, not um, forget for a minute how, where we live at, but all the big major decisions in our lives, if, those, if the primary thing we look for is what makes us comfortable and what we like, how could that not be worldly? Because that's exactly what everyone else in the world does. Has the gospel of Jesus, the beautiful, the sweet, the glorious gospel of Jesus, that he came to save us, rescue us from our sin, and then use us on his rescue mission to save others who do not know him. How can that not be more important than what makes you comfortable and what you like? How can it not be more important? It has to be a worldly mindset that leads us to use it as the primary decision-making factor for our big decisions in our lives. Has the mind of Christ so infiltrated your mind and your heart that it affects every aspect of your life, even how you make the biggest of decisions? Or are those types of decisions off limits to God? Or are those types of decisions off limits to him? I believe I've heard many people talk about going deeper in our relationship with God, going deeper in him. You have to understand that that also means allowing him and his way of living to go deeper into us, right? That we need God to go deeper into us, that, he, that his, his reach, his authority, his rule, his kingship reaches into every area of our lives. 
that we would welcome and embrace the fact that God would come into the, the house of our lives and go into every room and say, mine, 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 that's mine, that's mine. I rule and reign over it, and that will actually be what's best for you. And that will actually be what's best for you. If we look at chapter, can we get verse 19, excuse me, look at verse 19 real quick. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, Prisca, I don't know, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. A little phrase in there, together with the church in their house. Commentaries will say that there is a lot of archaeological evidence that Christians that would host a church in their house actually had additions made to their home so that they could house the church. They, they added building to their home so that they could house the church. Paul's expectation is that even your very home, the place that you feel most safe, the place you feel most secure, the place that you feel like is your space, is open for the work of God. That we will restrict our understanding of our rule over our own home and say to God, this is your house. This is your house. You own this house. What do you want it to be? What do you want it to be used for? Who do you want to be here? Who can we love on? Who can we share your love with in this home? The Christian response is to restrict our understanding of our own ownership of our own homes. I get it. Having people over your house is difficult. You want your house to be clean and people kids bad. I get it. I understand. You got to clean it before they get there. Then you got to clean it again after they leave. I understand what you're going through right now. Paul is also aware of the sacrifice that we're being called to. Very aware. This is high-level sacrifice that we're being called to. I get that it places extra weight for us to be hospitable as God calls us to be hospitable to one another. But we have to understand that our homes, even our very homes, the place that we see as our refuge, do not belong to us. Understanding that Jesus himself is your refuge allows you to use your home for the sake of the mission. Your home doesn't have to be your refuge if Jesus is your refuge. If Jesus is where you run in times of trouble, then your home doesn't have to be the place you run in times of trouble. Matter of fact, our ultimate home is to go be with him forever. He is our home now. He will be our home forever. So our homes now don't have to be everything that we wanted to be because our eternal home is going to be everything that we wanted to be. It's going to be everything. Here's the question. Do you see this home that belongs to God as your ultimate space? So now I have to make it exactly what I wanted to be. Or are you living as a missionary that's on the way home? That's on the way home. I saw one pastor write before that the Christian life, the Christian fellowship is just us walking each other home. Just walking each other home. If you have that understanding that really compared to a trillion times, a trillion years that we'll be in that home, we really only going to be in the house that we're in now for a little while. You're really not going to be there. You use this home to store up treasures for you in the next one. Paul has the expectation that we even see our homes as belonging to God, as embassies, so to speak, for us as ambassadors for the kingdom of God. An embassy is not your eternal home. It's not, it's not your actual long-term home. It's where you are while you're on this assignment to represent another kingdom. Our homes, this building that we use, we see them as embassies. We pack light, we keep our suitcases ready for when it's time to go home. 
Our society, we crave freedom from outside restrictions. But I don't think we ultimately, under, because we believe that, that freedom from those restrictions will get us the joy and internal peace that we ultimately desire, I don't think we realize what we're oftentimes actually sacrificing in pursuit of this so-called freedom. Let me try to explain what I mean. There's a pastor in Australia. I don't even remember his name. I was listening to his podcast. He said something. I was like, this is genius. He described our lives and our needs in our lives with three different tanks. I believe we have a picture of the three tanks. We have one for meaning, purpose. One for community, love. You can call that deep, meaningful relationships. You can call that fellowship. And one for freedom. He says, he says that we need all of these, but if you pour too much into one, the others are going to lack. So by meaning, he talks about we have purpose, we have passion, we have zeal about our lives because we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. We're not just only focused on ourselves, but we, we, we live with purpose that's beyond us. When he talks about a sense of commute for community and love is the fact that we all need deep, meaningful relationships. We all need these, these deep relationships where we find support and love for each other and also freedom. We all need to some degree, God, God gave us a will that we can use and we're able to make decisions. I know I've been talking about freedom in a negative light, so to speak, but we all need some amount of freedom, right? There are countries where they don't, the citizens do not have enough freedom, and it's extremely oppressive. We need all three. The problem is, in America, oftentimes, we put too much in the freedom tank and the others go lacking. We put too much in the freedom tank and the others go lacking. We often unknowingly sacrifice meaning and purpose and love and community as we pursue our freedom. Let me try to explain. We want to be free to do whatever we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. We want to be able to be spontaneous. So as I said before, in our culture, we, we delay starting a family. We want to be able to buy whatever we want to buy. We want to be able to sleep with whoever we want to sleep with, when we want to. When we want to be able to relax and chill, we want to be able to, when we want to relax and chill, we want to be able to do that. And that leads us to not being willing to and desiring to work for things that are bigger than ourselves. One of the ways I found this out, I go a lot of different places and even, even like to churches and even does a couple seminaries and speaking on the idea of racial reconciliation. And oftentimes when I do that, I talk about uh, oppression and all the scriptures in the Bible on oppression and how we should respond to oppression. You know what I get all the time? Oh, well, how, how are y'all serving oppressed people? We would love to become a part. We love to get on board with that. Yeah, just let us know we're in. We'll do it. And I never see him again. Never see him again. There's this desire for meaning and purpose. There's this desire to connect with and be a part of something that's greater than ourselves. But this desire that we got for freedom, this desire that we have to not put restrictions on us. When we did the, the farmer's market, when we were on Schoolhouse Road, I cannot tell you how many people said, you mean to tell me all I got to do to help y'all's neighborhood out is come and support the business on Sunday afternoons right after I get out of a church worship service, just bring my family by, I'm there 10 minutes, and we're good? And I was like, yes. And I saw, we probably saw 10% of them. Probably saw 10%. The desire for meaning was there. But the addiction to not having restrictions placed on us prevented them from actually being a part of the purposeful and meaningful thing that they desired to have. It actually worked against them. They were sabotaging their own true flourishing as people because of this lust for freedom from restriction. This is why adulting is so hard. Adulting means you got to live with restraints. What happened today is I can just play all day. 
We hate going to work because it puts restraints on our time. We hate having to pay bills because it puts restraints on our money. I heard one pastor say, I heard one pastor say, for many of us, life has become, life has become the things that I do that I got to go through just so I can get to my Netflix shows. Life has become the things that I have to do and get through just so I can get to my Netflix shows. Let me say this to you. If the thing that you get most excited about is a form of entertainment, you need purpose and meaning in your life. You need purpose and meaning and passion and real zeal for real things in a real world in your life. If that's what you are most excited about and most passionate about, entertainment, someone doing something on a screen that's not even real, that's what we're most excited about and most passionate about. You have pervasive boredom in your life because you don't have true meaning, likely because of our relentless pursuit of this freedom, and we don't want the restrictions that come along with Pursuing something that's actually meaningful and bigger than us. You'll be apathetic. If you would say that you struggle with apathy, but yet you also don't commit to things that really matter in the real world, you're your problem. You've embraced the worldliness, and it is robbing you of the flourishing that God actually has for you. For For the believer... It looks like caring more about what you want to do than you care about the mission of God. It looks like feeling like it's a burden instead of an exciting opportunity to actually share Jesus with somebody. It looks like wanting to use your money to do things that please you instead of using it for God and his purposes. We sacrifice meaning because we have this lust for this freedom that rids us of all restrictions. But we also sacrifice love and community for the freedom tank. We sacrifice it. For those of us who are affluent enough, and this thing I'm about to say, it's not sinful in and of itself, but it might be exposing, and we need to consider the sacrifice. For those of us who are affluent enough to make these types of decisions, oftentimes, in pursuit of our own goals, in pursuit of our own dreams, we will move from place to place to place to place. Right? Pick up, move, and so those relationships suffer. That's not sinful in and of itself, but it does come at a cost. I want you to see that it actually does come at a cost of relationships and love. It's not sin. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. Let me use uh, an example that maybe more of us can relate to. I have this, I have this philosophy about our life groups, this, this way of thinking about it. I believe there's a honeymoon period when it comes to our life groups. I believe there's a honeymoon period. There's a time when people coming around, you know, you heard me talk about it from stage before, how we want to be in community, we want to love each other, we want to take care of one another, we're going to use our spiritual gifts. You don't understand how good it's going to be for you to be able to use your spiritual gifts to bless the people that are in your life. You don't have any idea how great that's going to be. And it's like, yes, this is going to be awesome. People get in, they're excited. I generally give it about three months. I generally give it about three. Until, until, here's what happens. And I don't think we realize this is what's actually happening. Until you realize it takes way more effort. It takes way more sacrifice. It's way more challenging. You got to deal with way more frustrating people than you were realizing when we was first telling you about how great life groups were. Here's what's happening. The fact that people get excited about it means we are craving relationships and love and community. We are craving it. But because we're so addicted to freedom, 
because we're so addicted to not putting restraints on anything, then we'll use any excuse not to even show up for life group time, right? Desiring the relationships, desiring the love, desiring the community, all that. Any and every excuse not to even show up to the rhythms, to the life group, to whatever it is. You're addicted to freedom. You can't build the types of relationships that you want to build because you can't handle restrictions in your life. You can't both be the type of person that makes any excuse that they want to to not show up and be the type of person that has the type of relationships that you want. You can't do both. You are not able to have the type of meaning and purpose in your life that you desire to have if you are unwilling to accept the restrictions that that type of lifestyle demands of you. Our God is good and he is demanding. And that is good for you. Our God is good and he places restrictions on you. And that is good for you. He loves you. He is kind to you. He wants you to have more joy than you want for you to have. And he puts restrictions on you partially because that actually gets you to where you want to go. But we have not considered the messages that the world is giving us. We have not considered, has my expectations come from the world or come from the word of God? When I'm talking about being in Christian fellowship and Christian community, has my desire or has my picture of what it's supposed to look like come from God and his word or has it come from something that I made up in my mind or likely got from other people? We have embraced the very thing that is sabotaging our human flourishing because it's just the current that just runs under us. It's the current. It's the course that the world has laid out for us. And we don't even question that. And we don't even question it. The gap between what we want and what we're, able, what we're willing to put into it to get what we actually desire oftentimes is extremely high. After we had some new people into our life group, I can't remember how many months it was ago, it was last year. We were talking about what, what were we excited about, what were we maybe fearful about with, with the, the way the life group had, had recently changed. And I was like, I am fearful that what we all want now, we aren't going to want to put the effort forth necessary to get there, and I'm going to be seen as the bad guy when I tell people that that's what's going on. And I'm going to be seen like the bad guy for pushing us towards what we already said that we wanted, what we all desire. So some of us, we're even angry with God. We don't like the rules that God gives us. We feel like he's robbing us of something that's actually good because of the restrictions that he gives us. So we're upset with him. We're we're angry because we so bought into the world's lies. We believe them. We haven't even questioned them. We just call it life. And it is worldly. And one of the things that I love about Jesus is that he gives us appropriate freedom that we have a will, but he gives us the restraints that we need to actually flourish. That following Jesus gives us more meaning than anything else that, we've, that you could ever imagine or ever hear about. That he's bringing his kingdom in that is going to make the world again what it used to be and restore everything to the way it was before sin messed everything up. And he says, I want you to be a part of it. It's going to take some sacrifice, but it's going to be good for you. You won't find anything that you can cling to that will give you more meaning in your life than that. And he also gives us the love and relationships that we need because his death reconciles us with the father, the primary relationship that we need in our life, a relationship with God himself. And we are adopted into the family of God with many more brothers and sisters that need the exact same thing that we do. You won't find more human flourishing anywhere than those who truly submit to God and follow him. 
you won't find more flourishing than those who are finding meaning in him, finding their freedom in him, and finding love and community in and with him as well. He is what we need. He is our Savior that frees us from our own tendencies to sabotage, sabotage our own joy by following the world. He's what we need. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. I just want us to remember that this means he's worth following. That when we see the bread that was broken, that represents his body, and when we dip in the juice that, that represents the blood that was shed, when his body was bloodied and torn apart, that we need to remember. Because you, you might not always remember. You might not always be able to think through, or well, which tank am I putting everything into? That's not what I'm trying to get us to do every day of our lives. I'm getting, I want us to trust Jesus, that when he says this is how we should live, that this is how we live. I'm, I want us to, to doubt the world, to seek him in his word, always asking the way that I am living. Did I get this from the world? Did I get this from the word? This pattern that, I'm, that I find myself in, did I get this from the world or did I get this from the word of God? And the cross of Jesus reminds us that he always has our good in mind. He always has our good in mind. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your goodness today. Grateful that we can trust you. Father, would you instill in us a passionate desire to know you through your word? Will you give us a, a critical mind? Will you give us the mind of Christ that is ready to condemn and destroy any thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of who you are? God, help us to see the, the, the world and the tactics and all the patterns and all the thought processes that, that we might just accept to be the way life should be. Will you help us to look at those critically, Father, so that we're not just following the course of the world blindly. We need your spirit, God. Open our eyes. Help us to see. Help us to understand the proper way to view our freedom. Help us to see how good and beneficial it is for us to have restrictions placed on us so long as they lead us to you, our Savior. It's in Christ's name I pray.